0: Inside Books with Breeda Brown.
1: Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breeda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at Inside Books where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Adrian McKinty, the Northern Irish author who has written 12 crime novels, including the acclaimed Detective Sean Duffy series. Born in Belfast in the late 1960s, he studied law, politics and philosophy and later moved to the United States to teach English. His first book was published in 2004 and since then he has won a host of Best Novel, Best Crime Novel and Best Mystery or Thriller awards, as well as being shortlisted for many others. In 2019, his book The Chain became a global phenomenon that sold in 43 countries across the world. The novel made more than 25 Best Book of the Year lists, including Time magazine. And it won't surprise you to hear that the book is soon to be made into a movie by Universal Pictures. His new book is called The Island. Now, Adrian, we've a huge amount to unpack here. And I suppose particularly the fact that you've become an overnight success after 20 years of writing.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those <laughs> things, um, a, a decade and a half to become an overnight success. But, you know, I'll, I'll take it rather than um, leave it better. Um, better the long wait, because then when it actually comes, then you can really appreciate it. After all, the uh, shall we say not quite so successful books.
1: And, I mean, you've had a really interesting, I suppose, nomadic background. As we said, you grew up in Belfast at the height of the Troubles, went to university Mm -hmm. in Warwick and Oxford, moved to New York, became an English teacher, moved to Melbourne. You're now back in the US. So I'm just interested, you know, where and how, in the middle of that long list of travels, did the writing begin?
0: Um, Well, that's a great question. Um, I suppose... uh... I'd sort of, as you can see from my bio, I sort of just was drifting for a lot of years. And then when I turned 30 or 31, something like that, I had sort of a wee bit of a midlife crisis. And I thought to myself, McKinney, what are you doing here? You know, and I was teaching English at that point. We'd moved to Denver and I was teaching short stories um, to the kids there in, in my high school and the end of the short story unit where I'd made them, I would make them read classic short stories and then I would make them write one of their own. And um, which were always always really good, I always thought, you know, as as long as they kept it personal about what was happening in their lives or something like that. Well, it was good stories. Like whenever they were about space or whatever, it was they weren't so great. But (laughs) um, I remember uh, one class one year said to me, oh, Mr. McKindy, you're such a hypocrite. You're forcing us to do this terrible thing where's your short story Mm. and I started working on a story and I read it out to the class the next week and then it got longer and longer and longer and they said you know you should send this off to a publisher in New York and I did and they accepted it and that was how my first uh, novel um, came about dead I well may be.
1: And that was the first crime novel so that's how it started literally was as a a short story.
0: Yeah, exactly. basically, it was a short story that um, I couldn't condense. All the great short story masters make their short stories shorter. So like Chekhov <laughs> and Tolstoy and, and all these geniuses make it shorter and shorter and shorter. But mine got longer and longer and longer until I had 100,000 words. And I thought, oh, what do I do with this? And, um, and then I sent it off to uh, Simon and & Schuster and uh, I was lucky enough to find a sympathetic editor there and, um, and then he published it.
1: And that's fantastic though that you were so successful as I said in terms of getting a publisher so quickly not everybody is as lucky. Yeah I know
0: and also that's honestly that's not the way to do it um, the way to do it is to find an agent first um, you, you really shouldn't just send your manuscript off to a publisher because it'll, it'll never get read mine was an incredibly lucky phenomenon where my manuscript was just found on the slush pile by um, someone who worked in the office who gave it to her boss and then he read it but that almost never happens um, it's just much better to get an agent and let him or her deal with all the rejections all right. and rather than have you get hundreds of letters uh, that break your spirit and um, destroy your will to live. And obviously,
1: and I was going to say, obviously that was something you learned then as you went along that it would have been better to have an agent, first of all.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's much better to have an agent. They take care of the contracts. They take care of the business angle. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I got very lucky, um, but it's much better. There's this big book called Writers, Writers and Artists, mm-hmm. Uh, guidebook or study. It comes out like every two years. And it's got this huge, there's this, about 90 pages on agents. It's just better to get one of those. Um, that's the way to do it.
1: So that first book then was published, as you said, in Ireland in 2003, Dead, I oh, Well Maybe. It ended up being the first in a series then. So how did the series come about or had you planned it as a standalone?
0: Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I thought, you know, that old trope where everybody's got a book in them. I thought that was my book. You were done. Uh, yeah, so I was done <laughs> and I made the kids happy and they said, oh, Mr. McKinsey, you know, find a publisher, blah, blah, blah. So I felt that I was done. and um, But then the book, the book didn't do well commercially at all. Really? Um, no, it didn't do well commercially, um, but it did very well critically. I, you know, I, I got some really nice reviews and, and I got shortlisted for... Uh, Two or three awards, which I sort of wasn't expecting, um, including the Dagger Award and and the Edgar and stuff like that. So um, the publishers were still interested in me and they said, well, what's next? (laughs) And, (laughs) And I said, nothing. There's nothing next. And then they said, "Oh, you know, I'm sure you can think of something," and so they sort of um, encouraged me to uh, to 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 go further down the road. And then I thought, well, it might be fun to continue the adventures of the character from 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 Dead I Well May Be. So then I wrote uh, two more, and I thought, just like I, I like the idea of a trilogy, mm-hmm. and so that sort of got the momentum going. Because when you've written one book, you really could stop there. But when you've written three, you know, it doesn't seem so onerous to write a fourth and a fifth and a sixth.
1: So why did you stop there then?
0: Um, You you know, after the first one, I I felt because it was based on a real life story. I mean, I'd lived in New York as an illegal immigrant for two or three years. And when I was working in that economy, I'd met a lot of dodgy characters. (laughs) And it just seemed so full of incident that I didn't have to make that. I didn't have to make very much up, um, which I thought was great. Um, Like, you know, a lot of it was just dialogue I'd stolen from life, but then I thought, well, what a proper novelist does is they don't just steal stuff from their own life, they sit down and think up original stories, and so that's why I thought it would be so much harder to actually be a a proper working novelist, because you'd have to sit down and think up all these ideas, and um, it is harder. Um, but eventually ideas do come to you and uh, yeah, and you can you can write them out.
1: But you have to put the time in.
0: Yeah, you do. Uh, it's not easy to write 100,000 words. Um, it takes a year. At least it takes me a year. And James Patterson seems to do it every three weeks, um, <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm not James Patterson. Um, so it takes me about a year, maybe an hour or two a day. And then... You know, the actual writing is, is quite quite fun. I always found that to be quite enjoyable. But the editing is a living hell, um, turning this shapeless mass of words into a compelling narrative. I've, I've always detested that.
1: And do you plot then? Would If you plotted more, would that not help with that?
0: No, the first couple of books, I didn't. It was just I made it up as I went along. But then certainly when I was writing the Duffy series, um, I had to... Quite heavily plan those books. Out. I mean, I wrote a I wrote a, a locked room mystery, and um, with that, that was meticulously planned. I had about a fifty page plan for that one. Really? Because yeah, with a locked room mystery. You don't want to cheat the audience, so you have to leave clues at various stages along the way so the reader can find the answer at the same time or maybe even slightly before the detective. So you have to carefully plan every scene of, of, of the book. So that one had a huge plan. Um, and which book was that? Other, that was a book called In the Morning I'll Be Gone, the third book in the Duffy series. Right. Uh, some of the others, just one or two-page plans or just the idea even – in your head
1: and what I what I think is interesting is you know you went on as you said to the to do the Sean Duffy series there was six in that but at the same time you're also writing standalone novels and that were sort of coming out in in between so is it a case that you get bored easily or you just like different distractions or different things to work on
0: yeah I love the idea of a standalone I've I've always loved standalones I mean I I do like series some of the great series Raymond Chandler and Lee Child and just uh, you know there's so much fun but there's something so special about a about a standalone, in that you never know until the last page if anyone's going to live or die. Especially in the thriller or mystery genre, it's just so exciting. Uh, you just think, well, they all could die in the final chapter, and uh, and I've done that in 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 some of my standalones. Um, uh, where I've killed the hero in the final <laughs> chapter. And so it's very, very exciting to write to read and write a standalone because um, just there are no, absolutely no rules because you don't owe anybody a second book and uh, you just tell your story with a beginning, middle and sometimes a tragic ending. And uh, and that's a lot of fun. Whereas with a series, um, you kind of always know, oh, things look bad, but we know there's another book coming. So, you know, how bad can it be?
1: So... You said this earlier on, you know, some of your books were were not commercially successful, but they were critically successful now. And as you said here, you were writing and publishing, but at certain points, you just weren't making a living out of it.
0: No, no, I, I, you know, it's very funny. I was I was thinking about this the other day Um, when we were living in Australia. I never made enough to pay taxes in Australia because, you know, there's a certain minimum tax threshold um, for people living in, in poverty. They don't have to pay they don't have to pay taxes right. and i never made enough to actually pay taxes federal taxes in australia i was just living beneath the poverty line because the books were coming out and they were getting well reviewed um but the subject matter was pretty intense and just people weren't buying them or connecting with them um so um yeah they just weren't really selling in uh, and any was,
1: and you say the 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 subject matter was intense and was that because they were predominantly based in Northern Ireland and you were dealing with an awful yeah. lot of hard hitting topics.
0: Yeah, no no one was interested Belfast in the 1980s. People just didn't want to know. I couldn't get couldn't get anybody interested at all. I mean, I remember the um uh, uh one time I was in Foyles bookshop in London and um I went to look at the crime section and it was really funny at that time like 2007, 2008 you know there was a there was a danish crime section there was an icelandic crime section <laughs> um there was a norwegian crime section there was even a, a separate section for oslo based books and then you looked you looked at the uh the northern irish crime section and it was non-existent right. there was one novel by colin bateman and then just nothing else uh just people didn't want to know they just weren't interested I I actually thought about writing under a fake name and setting my books in Helsinki
1: um (laughs) on the zeitgeist
0: yeah why is he talking so much about the undertones and stiff little fingers in Helsinki I think that might have been a giveaway but um but still you know it was just hard to get that breakthrough you know so you were disillusioned then Oh yeah, yeah. I, I you know, because I, I, I felt I'd written these books to the absolute best of my ability, and just, but nobody wanted to buy them. So I, I was, I was pretty, and also I was a little bit annoyed as well because I thought if I if I'd grown up in Surrey, or you know, London, and I'd set the books there, then you know, they would have sold. By the bucketful, I'm sure, in the U.S. because people just love books set mm-hmm. in England. Or even if it's a, even if I'd grown up in Dublin, it would have been an easier sell. Because um, I remember around that time, those John Banville books were a huge hit, and the time of French books were a huge hit. And I thought to myself, God, it's 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 your blessing and your curse to have grown up in in Belfast, because it's such an incredible time, and the, you know it's so rich for a writer. Just that environment. But also, it's very off-putting for readers. So it was just one of those six and one, half a dozen of the other situations.
1: And then The Chain happened.
0: Yeah. And then I finally knew (laughs) what it was like to have a hit. And my God, um, that was bonkers. Um, Because all along, while I was writing The Chain, I thought, you know, I think this one could be different. um, Because it's set in the U.S., um, it's a very, the story has a lot of momentum. I changed my style quite a bit for that one. And I wrote it as a thriller rather than as a zone noir. And I thought this one has potential, but you just don't know mm-hmm. until the book is published. You know, I thought, well, maybe this, it's it, it's also quite an upsetting story and quite difficult subject matter. Um, so you just don't know if it's going to connect with anybody or everyone's just going to be horrified um, because my female lead in that, book is a child kidnapper. Mm I mean, that's a tough, that's a very tough subject matter to try and convince people to buy. Um, but uh, my goodness, I would just was completely overwhelmed.
1: But what's it. interesting is, as well, you had to be encouraged to write the book, you know. So this is, you know, somebody, another American crime author reached out to you, Don Winslow, because he saw on yeah, your blog uh, that you had decided you were going to take a break. And I'm interested, actually, first of all, did he? did you know him or did he randomly just get in touch with you?
0: we talked about this a lot since then and he says and i i, I don't remember this uh, um he says we had a drink at one of the voucher con conferences um and it may be that i'd had a little too much to drink <laughs> um, so i don't quite remember um uh, meeting don but i'd obviously given him my phone number and then out of the blue um he called me up and said adrian i i, I know you're going through a tough time and i I've heard you thinking about quitting, and I was in exactly your shoes five years ago, right before my biggest hit, "The Cartel," and um, and I, you just got to stick in there and, and keep writing another, keep writing another one. And then um, I talked to him a lot about that, and it was actually true. He had just had enough. His books were getting. It was exactly my story, but five years earlier, his books had gotten fantastic critical acclaim but he just wasn't making a living at it. And he had decided to go back to his old job of a safari guide in East Africa. And he had literally packed everything he'd done. And, and, and then he would decided to give it one more shot and he'd written the cartel. And then it was just an enormous global hit. And um, so, you know, it's always better to give it that one last shot before you move to Kenya. Um, or in my case, before <laughs> exactly. I decide I'm going to work behind a bar permanently.
1: But how incredibly generous of him, though, to reach out to you. He could have done nothing, um, you know, yeah. and, and he said he'd pass your work on to his agent. That's what happened. Sure. And the chain arrived. And suddenly, as we said earlier on, an overnight success after 20 years of writing. Like
0: it's yeah, like exactly. sliding doors. Oh, and Don's on that. I wasn't the only one. I wasn't the only um, like I've heard about six or seven different stories where Don has reached out to people and even people who hadn't published anything. And just mentored them and stuff because he's a guy who just loves reading and loves writing and loves writers. Um, and so he reaches out to people and, and and is a big mentor. And I've tried to pay it forward by doing mm. the same thing because it's only fair, you know, if people reach out to me and I've just gone, well, let me try and give you some of my experience and stuff that I've learned along the way because um, that's how this whole big thing just keeps going. Uh, and then maybe hopefully someone that I've reached out to We'll do the same, you know, a few, a few years down the line. Um, so um, that's how it works. Hopefully. And, that,
1: and that encouragement is so important. And I mean, that's something that I love about, obviously, the Irish book industry, but the international book industry. People are open to chatting. You know, you can approach somebody and say, I'm having a problem here. Can you help? Or what do you think? Or how did you get on? You know, authors, critics, booksellers, everybody. And and people are just really open to that. And I really like that about the industry.
0: Yeah, it's it's weird because it seems to be a function of crime fiction where people yeah, are helping yeah. each other, yeah. whereas the literary fiction they all just want each other to fail <laughs> um, and die. You know, the, the biggest joy isn't you reaching the top of the bestseller list; it's your um, best friend who lives down the road from you in Hampstead getting remaindered. Um, there's that famous Clive James poem, the 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 book of my enemy has been remaindered is the title of the poem and it's just the the schadenfreude he gets from seeing um you know his next door neighbor's book fail and that seems to be a function in the literary world i don't know why that jealousy doesn't happen in crime fiction i guess maybe it's a smaller community or the stakes aren't quite as high or but i've heard the same about science fiction as well the crime fiction world is very supportive science fiction world is very supportive, um, presumably in some of the other genres as well. Hmm. But in literary fiction, it's still quite cutthroat. Um, I'm, I honestly don't really know why that is.
1: So when you ended up at the top of the bestsellers list with The Chain, I mean, how did you feel considering what had gone on for the previous two decades?
0: I, I actually didn't believe it because I got, the, I got a... Um, um, I think I got a phone call from my editor's boss. He said, You've made the New York Times bestseller list. And I took the phone call, but I didn't actually believe it until the Sunday paper came out. And then I actually ran to the newsstand. I thought, well, you know, how do they know? They haven't, you know, they're they're not into the future. Um, so then uh, on Sunday morning, I actually ran to the newsstand, actually was waiting there as he opened up the, <laughs> the, 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 the
1: shutters
0: <laughs> and I said, have you got the New York Times yet? And he says, yes, yes. Yeah. And he had to sit and cut the, the the tape around it. And then I got it. And then I just stood there, grabbed the book review and like turned to like the final page and looked it up it says, and sure enough, it was there. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, and so took the whole family out for breakfast and uh, just sat stunned um because after all those years of failure um to have success was just uh, i was in a little bit of shock actually i think all day i i could not believe it probably more sweet though considering
1: everything that had happened yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think so. I think if you had that with your first book and then every other book did slightly worse, Mm. um, um, it would have been a terrible situation. But for every book to just flatline and then to have this sudden peak at the end, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. I hope everyone else can have a Sunday morning like that once in their life. You know, depending on you don't not, not necessarily in the field of writing, but just have that peak of emotion um, that I had. Cause it was it was really really great.
1: A moment of pure enjoyment. Now you're following it up yeah. with another thriller. This time it's called The Island.
0: Mm hmm. Um, this was a book. This is a product of Locked On. Um, Um, uh, It was basically I was stuck in the house with the kids. Um, They were on Zoom school and um, I was sort of helping them with their homework. And my wife's a teacher. So she was obviously teaching Zoom school. And then about 11 or 12 o'clock at night, the house would get quiet. And then I just jump into uh, the book I was working. So this was this book is mostly written from about midnight till about 3 a.m. And I think you can tell it's definitely a book that was written after midnight. There's a lot of excitement and weirdness and darkness <laughs> and um, and 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 hopefully a lot of sort of fun and adventure too along the way.
1: And you've moved the location from the US to Australia. So what was the reason for that?
0: Well, you know, I lived in I lived in Oz for about 10 years, and it's really funny. When I was there, the whole time I was there, all I did was dream about Ireland. Uh, all my dreams were about Belfast, and then I exercised those dreams by writing the Duffy books, um, and then as soon as we, we moved here in, to New York in 2018, and that's when I started dreaming about Australia mm, um, after we left, and it was very funny that, and, and I knew – like a year before I wrote this book, that my next book was going to be an Australian book um, just because it was my obsession and my dreams and all these places we'd visited and the heat and the food and the climate. And it was all there. And I knew I was going to channel it out into um, into writing an Australian-based novel.
1: And I was going to say, how do you approach your writing now? Are you still sitting from midnight to three o'clock in the morning or what, what way are you doing it?
0: I, you know, I, I used to be a morning cafe person. Um, or I said, go to a cafe around the corner and sit there with a mug of coffee, but I've actually found now that I've moved to late night, um, person. So you get, you get all your day over with, you get the kids to bed, everyone's bed. It's just you and the cats awake from (laughs) about 1130 to about 330. And it's fantastic because there's no distractions. The street is quiet. The house is quiet. And it's just you and your ideas. And um I've actually completely switched the way I write to, to doing it at night now. And uh, I quite enjoy it. What are you working on at the moment? I can't say. Oh, I'm on. absolutely not, no, I'm not allowed to say at all. Um I, I I can't say I'm about a I'm about a, I'm about a quarter of the way in and that's still within the parameters of the jinx. Right. Uh so if you say it out loud the jinx will hear you and you think oh you think your book's going well you think it's going well enough for you to tell people the title and well guess great. what <laughs> well guess what you're gonna have nine months of writer's block uh so so it's it's just too dangerous to say anything
1: and the chain as well we mentioned earlier on is going to be a movie what's what's the
0: update on that um, the, I've, they're writing a screenplay at the moment, and um, I'm anxiously waiting to uh, um, to read the screenplay. I, I didn't want to have anything to do with the screenplay. Why? I'm very Why? happy to read it.
1: Um,
0: well, to be honest, the, the the Chain is quite a traumatic uh, novel, and it was quite traumatic for me to write. It was a very emotional book for me to write. And you don't just write it once. I mean, you you, you rewrite it a couple of times, um, so you obviously have to read it two or three times and then it gets edited, copy edited and proofread. So you end up like reading it about six or seven times. And I found that quite emotionally draining and quite intense experience. So then when they asked me, would you be interested in writing the screenplay, which means reading it again and again and again and dissecting it and breaking it up and all, I absolutely said, "Uh, no way at all. I have no, I would love the money of course. Is there any way of I could take, take the money but not write anything? And unfortunately, they didn't go for uh, that plan. Um, they said, no, we'd expect you to actually uh, write something at the end of it. I assume, so, um, though, you'll want
1: a little cameo role, will you?
0: Yeah, no, I would love. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would love. Um, a, a cameo. I remember um, Irving Walsh's cameo in, uh, in Train Spotting. And I thought, there you go. He just turned up for the day. He just had to memorize one sentence, and there he is, is in the movie, and that sounds perfect. You just show up for the day, you have one line, and uh, and then you're out. And uh, so I'd be completely happy doing that. And, um, yeah, so we'll see.
1: And obviously you'll get a, a VIP invitation to the red carpet premiere, you know?
0: A bloody better. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I still uh, better get an invite.
1: What about the island then? Any talk about that going to screen?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's been optioned by um, you know Hulu, which is part of uh, Disney. and um, But there's an old, you know, I, I'm excited about that and I hope that happens. But I remember an old editor telling me a funny line. He said, you know, for every 100 books that get optioned, 10 books they write a screenplay and one actually gets made so i'm not going to um you know build up my hopes too much about that but um we'll we'll see
1: are you done with writing about belfast
0: absolutely not um i got so many stories to tell um set in belfast and even if nobody wants to read them i'm so, i'm still <laughs> going to I'm still going to write them.
1: You're going to write them and let let the passion flow, as they say. Adrian yeah, McKinty, exactly. thank you so much for joining us here on Inside Books. You'll find all of Adrian's books online or at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books I or E. Inside Books is a unique media production with research by Amy Wynn. And if you'd like to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm breeder brown until next time keep reading
0: inside books is a unique media production